Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Uh, uh, Mike and I have rehearsed in the in the okay. interest of full disclosure, and uh, uh, oil and gas is going to be quick. I think the price of oil is as likely to come down as go up. It's obviously a huge backwardation. The price three years from now is $10 less than the price, the current price. Price of natural gas has behaved very well. It's uh, The strip is up around $3. There is backwardation, but it's behaving pretty well. Uh, the companies are all, the, remember, you don't want to own any oil and gas companies unless the debt is under one year of cash flow. And... Uh, and they increase their dividend every year. As long as you live with that rule, uh, you'll be fine. So you're you're limited to Cabot and Pioneer and EOG and maybe Diamondback. Uh, and uh, uh, so, but that'll keep you out of trouble. Um, the uh, uh, macro, uh, uh, <clears throat> I believe that uh, the Fed Reserve Chairman, who said famously said. We're not talking about talking about tapering. I think the new stance will be that we are talking about tapering. And I, I think it's just inevitable. Um, if the 10-year rate goes to um, much higher, it's currently 165, if it goes to two and a half or three, I don't think that's a reason that, the, you know, that, I don't think that'll have too much impact on anything. The, the logic for two and a half or three is two percent inflation plus one and a half percent real return. Um, uh, so, you know, I think the coast is clear, kind of from a macro point of view. Um, that being said, uh, equities are pretty expensive, and uh, you know that be careful when you're. You've got a favorite one and you're buying it because, you know, it, it may go down from your purchase price. And when it goes down, that's a good time to, um, you know, to the position. With that, the news that Mike and I think is, is worthy uh, is, uh, and we want to stick where, you know, between the two of us, we'll cover at least three different positions. Uh, I'd say two for me and two for Mike, but let's say we get to three every every Wednesday. Uh, I have nothing to add about Goldman Sachs or Fastenal or CarMax, which we've discussed in past Wednesdays. Um, because there's a lot of streaming news with uh, Warner Media uh, being divested by AT&T into Discovery, with Amazon apparently about to buy the MGM film library, including Bond, all the Bond films. And uh, <clears throat> with, uh, uh, with uh, you know, Disney having become a favorite because it got up to 100, 100 million subscribers pretty quickly. Um, and, uh, and with Netflix, I've always thought kind of vulnerable because of lack of free cash flow, having to spend so much on content that um, they didn't, they, they, you know, they, 
They weren't issuing equity, but they were borrowing some more money. I think during the pandemic, uh, Netflix actually couldn't spend money. It was hard to do uh, TV serials and other uh, productions. But I do think with Disney getting up there so quickly, with uh, HBO Max, the other Warner Media thing, you know, probably probably in third place. Uh, a good question is, what do you do if you're fourth or fifth? And one of the companies I have a full position in is is uh, Comcast. And I've always said, back when we were meeting in person and prior Wednesdays, that Comcast has a great advantage that you don't have to decide in media whether you're buying uh, content or delivery. It's both because uh, they and Charter have the largest uh, uh, number of uh, uh, cable customers or internet customers now. Uh, Charter doesn't have any media, and Comcast has uh, NBC Universal and 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 uh, the Golf Channel and so on and so forth. Um, Comcast did make an overly expensive, probably good strategic move, but overly expensive when they bought Sky as part of uh, uh, when Fox or the remnants of Fox went into Disney. Um, and uh, uh, But it's doing okay. It hasn't been the kind of performer that Charter's been, but it's been okay. Um, and it continues to be a place where um, <clears throat> where content and delivery are combined. Uh, I don't know what I think about the stock. I mean, it, it it does increase its dividend every year. Um, uh, to me, you know, I own it at much lower levels. It's not something to sell. I'm, I'm not sure it's something to buy. Um, uh, and with that, uh, Mike is going to explain what he thinks is going on <clears throat> uh, with Amazon and their interest in content and kind of the network effect of, uh, of, of being Amazon. So over to you, Mike. Great. Thanks, Hunt. I, I think this deal actually is really interesting because, because like you said, there's two big media deals just happened this week and they're very different. Um, and I think to explain what's going on here, I'm going to take a couple minutes and explain uh, the concept of aggregators versus platforms. Um, so, so like we said, AT&T spinning out the, the Warner Media assets. Um, I'm going to categorize AT&T as a platform, um, which would be like an internet service provider, uh, a, a cable company, or a cell phone company. Um, and we'll define an aggregator as um, our Amazon, Google, Facebook, Netflix type of a company. Um, and uh, part of what we'll highlight in this is why they're um, their business models are distinctly di different. And I, the regulators are actually wrestling with this right now because they don't fully understand the business models of these companies, which is why they're ending up in um, antitrust litigation. So, uh, so AT&T owning a media uh, asset like Time Warner, I guess the point that we're gonna make here today is that um, it makes more sense for a company like Amazon, a aggregator to own a media company than it does for AT&T. So uh, let's start with the difference in distribution between the two. Um, for an aggregator, again, this is Amazon or Google or 
Facebook, uh, distribution is the internet, which is completely commoditized and almost free from a business strategy perspective. Netflix does pay a good chunk of money for bandwidth, but uh, compared to their total costs, it's, it's near zero. Um, <clears throat> on the other hand, a platform requires, and especially if we take the case of an ISP, requires to build out a physical infrastructure. Um, AT&T needs to lay fiber, DirecTV and Dish have to launch satellites. Um, mobile, um, mobile phone networks need to uh, buy spectrum and install phone towers. So it takes a huge upfront investment. Um, and to get it right is really challenging, which is part of the um, part of the the angle that uh, Charter takes is that we're, they're a very specific company. They don't own media assets. Uh, the flip side is AT and T that said we're going to do we're going to try to do internet and TV and mobile and uh, and we're going to own media assets as well. And so you see how the two have you know one's done well, one has not. Um, <clears throat> so. So, okay, so from a distribution perspective, they're, they're very different. Um, from a competition perspective, um, they're very different too. Uh, platforms spend a lot up front, um, but the payoff is a physical lock-in, meaning they either have a, a monopoly or a near monopoly in a particular segment. Um, and in a lot of cases, the competition is uh, zero sum, meaning if you get internet at your home from AT&T, you're not also gonna get internet at your home from Verizon, if it were even available. Um, aggregators are a bit different. Their goal is to control demand. And that's, it's a big change in business strategy, right? Because it, instead of spending uh, money to keep people, uh, keep your competition out, they're spending their money in order to attract more people to their platform. Um, the flip side is they don't have any lock-in at all. Customers are free to choose and leave. So whether it's Amazon who has a customer that could buy their product through their website, or they could go to Google and search for the product, or they could go to walmart.com and search for the product, um, they have lots of options. So in order to be successful in that business model, they have to be successful in providing value to the customer, um, which is very different from AT&T and Verizon, because you're never going to get internet from both of them. Um, <clears throat> the final thing I want to highlight is the potential for growth between the two. Um, platforms, their growth is dependent on where they lay down their infrastructure, um, where they've installed cable or towers or et cetera. Um, aggregators have free distribution because they utilize the internet, for, for which costs them near zero to, to distribute. Um, which means they can serve anybody. So growth is, in a way, near limitless. Um, okay, so how does all of that make sense um, for Amazon as an aggregator to own an asset like MGM rather than a company like AT&T? Um, so in order to control demand, in order to generate demand, it needs to deliver better customer experience. So um, so that the customer chooses Amazon first when they decide to shop, shop online. Um, Google, Facebook, um, and Netflix have similar, similar uh, ethos, if you will. Um, purchasing MGM is going to make Amazon Prime incrementally better for consumers, thereby increasing demand. Um, and then we can 
make a little bit of a, a stretch assumption here to say that given the way Amazon operates as a highly data decision driven company, um, we can presumably assume that uh, someone in the finance department at Amazon has done the calculations that show that purchasing MGM is a net positive, uh, net NPV positive investment for the company. Um, and I'll, I'll stop there, Hunt, if you've got some feedback or questions on. on... Um, I've been wrong, wrong, wrong on Netflix uh, and embarrassed about it. But uh, to me, uh, the, um, the, um, the, 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 the advantage of Amazon is, um, is that on their 200 million prime customers, uh, there's all kinds of way to make money. Um, and, um, and, uh, so I'm comfortable with that. The thing I'm not comfortable with, with Netflix is that there doesn't seem to be positive cash flow. They have to spend so much on content to compete with Disney or, or for that matter, to meet, compete with Amazon that it is, um, you know, I, 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 I don't see that they have that from a financial point of view, they can limit their spending on content and generate cash flow that they could use to pay a dividend or buy in stock or what have you. I think it looked like they were generating cash flow last year because um, with the pandemic, it was hard to, to, um, to develop shows, to develop uh, TV serials and whatnot um, uh, because everyone was, locked down but now i think that you know especially with amazon acquiring uh the bond franchise and the rest of mgm and discovery um uh, you know having you know access to all the warner content um uh i and, and disney pushing hard to um you know to have disney plus uh subscribers it seems to me Netflix is kind of stuck continuing to spend a lot of money on content. But how, how does it look to you, Mike, as a consumer of all this and in terms of watching this as a, as a kind of a predictor of, uh, of, uh, of uh, who's going to need the most data centers and that kind of stuff from a chip point of view? Yeah, good, good question. I, I think the Netflix model is interesting because that, I've never been an investor in Netflix and I could never get myself to do it because I felt like their problem was they were always going to have to um, either pay for somebody else's content or they would have to create it themselves. Um, the, I think now you're going to have, I, I guess their, their advantage is the price points so low that nobody turns it off. And for a direct to consumer business, they have an incredibly low churn rate. I wonder if that will change as there's more competition in streaming. Um, right. I think there's like probably a maximum average amount of money that the American household is willing to spend on entertainment. And it was probably, you probably look back at what people were spending on cable packages back in the mid 2000s and that might be your your upper bar threshold um, but now it's going to come from a source of a bunch of different locations so um, so yeah i 
I, I don't love the Netflix business model, but I've been like, like you, I've been wrong on it for a very long time. <laughs> the, uh, the, 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 what I suspect is that, well, if you look at the cable business, whether it's Charter or Comcast, um, it has turned into providing, um, uh, uh, not collecting money for ESPN, it's turned into providing high-speed internet to uh, the customers. And um, it, it, um, um, it's a, um, you know, it's a, Charter's done very well. Comcast is doing well in, in that category. And um, uh, I, I suspect that AT&T and Verizon, I mean, one of the reasons for AT&T doing this transaction is to clear the deck to uh, provide uh, more service uh, in competition uh, with the uh, cable companies. One of the things I've noticed in reading Comcast, I don't really follow Charter the way I do Comcast because I own Comcast. Actually, Brian and his colleagues at Oak Cliff, uh, their partnership uh, have, have been large. You know, it's had a significant allocation to Charter all along. Um, but I think that Verizon and AT&T uh, wireless business is vulnerable to um, Comcast and Charter who do order wireless, uh, wireless plans and they use their systems uh, to provide some of the service. And um, that is probably a vulnerability to AT&T and Verizon, uh, or for that matter, T-Mobile, Sprite, or, or Dish. Uh, on the other hand, the vulnerability of the cable companies is uh, 5G, where uh, Mike and his household can get perfectly satisfactory download and upload uh, without being wire-connected. Um, so... Um, and, and of course, the implications for uh, the chip companies that are doing well, you know, NVIDIA, ADM, uh, and maybe want to try to recover like Intel, um, is significant because um, the, uh, or for that matter, Qualcomm, I mean, the onset of 5G, if that were to replace people being wired and getting their, you know, downloading their, their uh, content um, through being hooked up to cable, uh, I mean, there'd be quite a significant dislocation. And uh, uh, we could probably spend, you know, another couple hours on this subject. <laughs> but with that, with that, I turn, I turn it back to Mike to have him give you his assessment of uh, how, how, that, how that is. But but I do think AT&T is stronger having done this transaction because the, the deal with Discovery, they own 71% of Discovery and they offloaded about 40, 45 billion of debt. So, I mean, it does kind of clear the deck at AT&T to push hard on 5G. I, I think it's one of the one of the one of the outcomes here. Agreed. And I, I think they have to do it. Otherwise, the, the existing business they have is going to be. Um, completely overrun by competition and what it, it will be really interesting to see how it plays out because these fixed the fixed line operators right that have invested in the wires in the ground 
are going to have competition for the first time. A lot of their monopolies were sort of protected by state and federal laws. So by having wireless communications available that could potentially replace people's internet connection, um, it's very likely that competition could get pretty in, intense. And uh, again, we don't we don't know how that's all going to shake out, but we can just assume that there's going to be more competition directly in this industry than there has been in the past. Um, I, I still think it's um, I think it's a rising tide sort of lifts all ships in in some ways uh, because the uh, the there's still a relatively few number of players, um, and the applications for 5G are much more vast than just providing home internet. It just happens to be one source um, of readily available revenue for which they can tap. There are some inter interesting Comcast statistics. Um, if we go back um, 11 years ago, uh, the number of subscribers were 24 million and uh, they had 15 million of the 24 uh, classified as high-speed internet and uh, and then uh, 6 million uh, of the 24 were getting their phone service through cable. If you go to the most recent year, uh, you have 28 million subscribers, so it's only grown four in like 11 years, but all 28 are getting high-speed internet, and your phone, the people are also getting phone service from uh, from uh, cable has gone to 11 million. Um, in a fairly mature business, your pre-tax, pre-interest cash flow uh, from cable um, uh, uh, was $13 billion 11 years ago, and it's gone up by $10 billion. So, um, and during this time, Comcast acquired NBC Universal, acquired Sky. So that, that in, in things other than cable, 11 years ago, there was basically zero. Now there's $11 billion of uh, EBITDA in those other categories. Um, the uh, one of the arguments against Charter and Comcast uh, is that they are vulnerable to 5G. In other words, uh, if you if you have enough 5G antennas up in your neighborhood, theoretically you don't you 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 could reduce your 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 internet bill by relying on 5G um, to be determined how that works i mean mike who's pretty technical is is doing that in his home uh and doesn't doesn't find any diminution i i think i've stated that correctly but uh you know uh uh sitting there with almost 30 million cable customers you know how vulnerable is comcast to 5g and with that maybe i've overstated how you're running your household with uh, off 5G, Mike. If, if, if I have overstayed, you can set us straight. No, it's okay. I'll, I will set you straight only because uh, both my wife and I are working from home. And the, I'll tell you, the first day that we 
switched the whole house over to the, the 5G connection. It was stormy in San Diego, like the one time all year. And the connection was really bad and neither of us could get on our Zoom calls. So we switched it back over and we, we haven't reverted back. I think maybe once we're back in the office more regularly, we'd be willing to take a slightly less perfect connection. So that tells you, well, a couple things. One, the signal at my house is not that strong. And two, um, it, you know, there's varying levels of service that people are willing to accept for their internet connections. And for a business user, that's going to be different than a home user. Um, so that's not to say that five, you shouldn't take my experience as being one that 5G is bad um, so much as it just wasn't right for us. Um, right. Um, since, since we're talking statistics, Hunt, and we have a few minutes left, there's been some interesting things happening in the crypto world. Do you, uh, do you mind if I take a few minutes and cover that? No, not at all. Not at all. So Actually, as I understand it, Elon Musk is right. Uh, uh, mining, uh, mining Bitcoin is pretty energy intensive. It, it very much is. And I, um, I, I, there's a website that tracks the, uh, it's called the Big Bitcoin Energy Consumption Ignet, uh, Index, hosted by the DigiConomist. Um, some interesting statistics out of here is one Bitcoin transaction uh, consumes the same amount of uh, same carbon footprint as 1.2 million Visa uh, transactions. So you see how much more goes into processing Bitcoin. Um, if you look at Bitcoin as a uh, as total carbon footprint versus an, another country, it's comparable to that of the country of Portugal. Um, and if you were to combine Bitcoin and Ethereum and their total uh, energy consumption, they would be the, what was it, 20, I think it's 23rd largest country by con energy consumption, um, just ahead of the Ukraine and just behind Thailand. So uh, wow. it's, it's not an insignificant amount of energy uh, that goes into this. And e so Elon Musk has turned into the, uh, the sort of the, uh, all the lemmings follow whatever he says uh, when it comes to trading crypto or really anything he says on Twitter these days. So- uh, Mike, if I could step in here. Uh, yeah. One of my one of my COVID classes, I'm Todd Sparling. Um, one of my COVID classes that I took at the Sloan School was all about blockchain. Blockchain technology consumes 25% of our daily production of energy globally. Ooh, it's that it's that insane. Wow. Just I, wanted to interject that one. No, that that's yeah. really helpful. I, I and here's the thing with crypto. At least this is my theory, um, because we can create infinite versions of cryptocurrencies. There, these things are gonna evolve over time. And, and Ethereum is one that's probably, it's more, more forward looking than Bitcoin is because they're moving to a new model for valid validation of transactions that's not going to be um, energy intensive. Um, and that switch should happen sometime later this year. So that, something to keep in mind because you call Bitcoin, we may call Bitcoin a store of value, but it's also very susceptible to just becoming obsolete because everybody says, well, it's not a great cryptocurrency and there's these 
5,000 other cryptocurrencies with different designs in order to solve for some of the problems that were existed because of Bitcoin. So while Bitcoin supply might be limited, the supply, ultimate supply of digital currency is unlimited. Oh, uh, last year there were uh, roughly 2,000 different cryptocurrencies, essentially tokens for the function of different platforms. Um, and they all need them uh, to promote their, their platforms themselves. Uh, Coinbase being the very first one is a special one kind of proof of concept to allow everybody to get out there and use it, but it requires mining to maintain its uh, ability to uh, or uh, maintain verification. Um, unfortunately, it takes a huge amount of energy to do that. The technology itself, uh, if everybody in theory is a node to get verification through consensus, everybody has to have a computer that stores everybody else's or every single transaction of every other person using it. That's just a huge amount of everything if you add it all up. Uh, and that's with 5.8 billion people not having regular computer access. So uh, scalability is going to be really interesting on that one. Ty, again, for the end of our call, uh, I don't know whether this is an accurate number, oh, but the Colonial is. Pipeline, uh, uh, the ransom was paid in Bitcoin, and apparently uh, you, you can follow Bitcoin transactions now, or someone allegedly says they can follow, and Darkside, which was the entity that admitted uh, hacking Colonial, uh, received $90 million in Bitcoins uh, just in the you know, just just as Colonial went back on. I, I heard that was their total that they had received from all their different fraudulent activities last year. Oh, I don't know. I heard $4 million yeah. for just the uh, Colonial Pipeline. I, th I yeah, think that's Colonial. Yeah, Colonial Pipeline. Uh, I don't know whether they ever officially uh, announced that they had uh, paid a ransom, and but the number I had heard was four or five million. But on our morning call, someone said they uh, seen some uh, some commentary that uh, a total of ninety million had made its way to the of of Bitcoin had made its way to Darkside. So maybe maybe that is all all that Darkside has collected, not just uh, a ransom paid by Colonial. Um, that 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 the um, that the the problem uh, I see with um, with uh, uh, all these uh, payment systems, and may, maybe maybe if if we don't have other news, we can get into this next Wednesday. Uh, I've been wrong on lots of stocks, and one of the stocks I've been wrong on is PayPal. Uh, I also years ago on MasterCard and I made money on it, but decided to sell it. I am uh, totally um, at sea, so to speak, to take a nautical on how to think about payment systems. And um, uh, if we if we can't next Wednesday, the Wednesday after, the Wednesday after that, it'd be very interesting. I'd do more listening than, than uh, uh, you're asking questions, but I, I don't know how to um, how to think about as an investor uh, uh, making money from a, a payment system. The reason I sold MasterCard is that, uh, and I think it's true of Visa too, 
they have enormous amount of litigation settlements every year. And when I looked at them from a free cash flow point of view, less litigation, it just wasn't that attractive. And during the time I owned it, four or five years, I kept thinking, well, it's litigation, I'll get through it, and then it'll die down. But it was just there every year. And it was basically retailers suing, saying it was a monopoly and, and they were being uh, overcharged and et cetera, et cetera. Um, the, uh, uh, but uh, that number of 25% of energy consumption to do blockchain, uh, that, that seems very high to me. But if it's, if it's true, I mean, it's an extraordinary number. And, you know, I, there, there has to be a more efficient way to do payments. Agreed. So I think that'd be great to cover um, different payment, payment platforms since there are some relevant ones with PayPal and Square um, and some of the other, uh, and maybe not next week, but maybe the week after. Yeah. I did look at Square and the, the, the commentary I'd have on Square is I'm just very interesting and people made a great deal of money on appreciation of Square last year, but to a certain extent, Square is financing their customers, these smaller retailers. Uh, if you're a smaller retailer and you use Square, they basically provide working capital financing for you. So that may be great, and but but it it you know in a, in a downturn or a or a you know a uh, you know that <clears throat> you you may not just be acquiring a a, a a payment system. You may be acquiring someone who in effect is taking the role that a bank would in providing working capital financing to these. To your customers, and uh, that that can work fine until it doesn't work. But uh, that that was a concern I had, Lucky and Square. But we've already run over, and I think we promised next Wednesday or the Wednesday after the Wednesday after that to pay to pay attention to uh, to uh, payment systems. And with that, hope everyone stay well. Take care. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune into us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder. Nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.